and welcome to our 19th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is your host, David Helvard, my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello there. Hey there. And today we're with our friend, Anna Cummins, a co-founder and global strategy director, Five Gyres, which is one of the world's leading science and advocacy groups uh, working around plastic pollution of our seas. I think I first met you, Anna, in 2008, 2009 in Hawaii. Roz Savage had just rowed there from the West Coast as part of her trans-Pacific row for Blue Frontier. And a few hundred miles short of the island, she ran into uh, Marcus Erickson, your partner and uh, father of your child, who was on a junk raft, which was actually made of junk, a lot of plastic. You recall those bygone days? I will never forget that journey. That was really the journey that set off the whole adventure of, of Five Gyres. And uh, meeting Ross was one of the pivotal uh, points of that expedition. Ross is an equally amazing hero. And we've told her story so many times of her obituary that she wrote about uh, the life she was heading towards and the life she wished to lead. But we heard about Roz uh, when we were building the raft. We were building junk raft out of 15,000 plastic bottles. And we heard that there's an equally... Uh, I was going to say equally crazy, but an equally intrepid adventure who was rowing a rowboat across the Pacific. And we thought, you know, good luck to you. And maybe if we're lucky, we'll cross paths in Hawaii. Well, as it turned out, it was critical that Marcus and Roz were able to meet at sea. Um, Marcus was running dangerously low on food. Uh, so we built this raft in about two and a half months and it took three months to sail it, if that gives you an idea of the timeline of building this raft. Um, but we didn't factor on it taking so long. Marcus and his co-navigator Joel were getting very hungry. And I was monitoring the blog every day and started getting reports from Roz's mother in London saying, you know, she's run out of water. The, her water uh, filtration system broke down. So it took them a week to meet up at sea. Roz had tons of food. Uh, Junkraft had lots of water and they exchanged water and food at sea. And we have been lifelong and, friends oh, ever that's since. So and, neat. and went overboard and caught a fish and had a nice dinner, I hear. <laughs> that's right. We have it captured on video. Um, Joel jumped overboard and speared a mahi-mahi. Um, Roz ate like a queen and they all ate very well. And Probably about a month later, we watched Roz row her rowboat into, uh, into Honolulu, which was quite amazing. And in wow. the interim, we had this uh, press conference at the Hawaii Aquarium uh, with the junk raft, which I love the cabin was actually the cabin of a, of a derelict Cessna uh, aircraft. And then we went over to the west side of Oahu, where with a group of... Um, Mormon kids, college kids from the local BYU. We did a, a cleanup of this beach that was just covered in plastic. It was, uh, you know, right in the gyre where all the plastic came ashore on this one stretch of beach. And you could, you know, take out the big pieces of plastic and de marine debris. But when you'd scoop up the sand, it was literally like plastisand. You had these small pieces where the silicate was mixed in with red and orange and blue bits of plastic. And that was the first time I saw it at that scale. And it, it really stuck with me that, uh, you know, plastic really was a major global pollutant at this point. And, and obviously, it stuck with you too, because that was when you and Marcus got together and, and started Five Gyres. I mean, you'd, you'd already been on the topic before then, right? Well, actually, my interest in plastic dates back to uh, meeting Vicky in Santa Cruz when <laughs> I became an intern for Save Our Shores, where Vicky was the ED. So, Vicky, why don't you say a word about the work you were doing then? Oh, it was wonderful. We were working on ocean issues 
primarily focused on the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And I got this wonderful email from this enthusiastic young woman who wanted to work on how to engage communities around protecting the thing that they love, the ocean, which was right there. And since the sanctuary was newly designated, we were trying to figure out like what policy should be implemented when things were going awry? How do we get community engagement around either new regulations or modifying the existing ones? So it was, um, it was a lot of fun. And then Anna came and interned. So tell us more about what you remember. So this well, is Santa Cruz, 19, late, mid-1990s. For me, it was 2000, 2000, 2001. I was a graduate student at the time at uh, the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, where, David, I know you're still actively engaged. And I interned for Save Our Shores. And, you know, working with Vicki, first of all, I had the pleasure of just catching Vicki before she moved on. And I learned a couple lessons that have stuck with me to this time. You know, one was really about diplomacy, that in this issue, if you're working in the environmental sector, you're going to come across all kinds of people on all sides of, uh, of the issue, from fishermen to policymakers and to people who might not always see eye to eye. But at the end of the day, people are people. And if you can treat people with kindness and try and meet them where they're at, that will go a long way towards trying to find resolution to, to really sticky issues. So that's, that was my biggest takeaway from my time uh, uh, crossing paths with Vicky. It was also at my time in Santa Cruz when I was exposed to the work of Captain Charles Moore um, at an oceans conference in Santa Barbara. And I thought I knew a thing or two about marine conservation, having gone to school in Monterey and living in Santa Cruz, it's a hotbed of marine activity. But hearing Captain Charles Moore speak about plastics and the oceanic gyres, I'd never even heard this term, that out in the middle of the ocean where very few ships are going are, are these massive areas that were slowly filling up with microplastics. So that was a real eye-opener for me back in 2001 because very few people were talking about the issue. Of course, today in 2020, the issue of plastic pollution is practically a household name, well, not quite, but a lot of people are aware to the issue of plastic pollution. And our narrative and our understanding of the impacts have really shifted over the last five or 10 years. And we can get into that a little bit, but I owe a lot of um, those early learnings to, uh, to meeting Vicky. Mazel tov, Vicky, getting us this, <laughs> this activist. And gyres are like whirlpools, but at a planetary level. The plastic that we hear about first was identified in the Pacific gyre. Yes. So every ocean has a gyre. It's a natural phenomenon that is the spinning of the earth, its winds and its currents. And it creates these huge whirlpools in the oceans. When floating plastics enter, they never fully biodegrade. Um, they just fragment into smaller and smaller pieces. And I have here on the desk, because I pretty much always have it here. Okay, so I'm holding up a jar of ocean plastics that we scooped from the middle of the North Pacific Ocean. And what you see looks like a small of microplastics mixed in with krill and zooplankton and life. Um, and you see that for thousands and thousands of miles. So the big issue, it's the ultimate out of sight, out of mind. But what's interesting is over the last five years or so, we've learned so much about this issue and we've learned that the impacts on the ocean are just the beginning, beginning of the story, that the harm from plastic really extends across the entire supply chain of plastics from extracting plastics to make products, to manufacturing, to their ultimate um, loss in the sea. Many people don't really understand that plastics come from 
fossil fuels that are found in the middle of our country, Wyoming, Pennsylvania, Texas, and it all starts on land. And then it has that life cycle that you just referenced. So it's, it's really big and it crosses all sectors. And it is something that we are all working on trying to really let people know, hey, it's not an end result issue. It's the whole big picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are starting to make those connections and we're seeing the coming together of, of movements. There have been people fighting shale and fracking for, for many, many, many years. And there have been people working on the plastic pollution issue for many, many years. And finally, they're starting to come together and realize we're all working on the same issue. Similar with people who are fighting issues of incineration or issues, NIMBY issues of... Um, oil extraction and refining happening in communities of color and marginalized communities. So we're seeing all these organizations starting to, to connect um, and trying to build power against the big one in the room, which is big oil and big plastic, um, a just transition off of fossil fuels. So you went to work with Charles Moore after you first heard from him? I kind of strong-armed my way in. So when I first heard Charlie speak, uh, it, you know, it really was like a light bulb for me about this issue that I knew so little about. So I kept calling and emailing until eventually I got myself invited on a research trip across the gyre. I mean, first I got myself invited on a, on a shorter trip to Guadalupe Island with Charlie and a couple other researchers, one from, from Santa Cruz, to look at the impacts of plastic on Laysan and Albatross. And that was the clincher for me, seeing that far from land on this uninhabited island, these birds were ingesting large quantities of plastic, feeding them to their chicks. And I watched a mother regurgitate plastics into the beak of her child. And although I didn't have children at the time, there's something about those maternal heartstrings thinking about feeding the next generation and seeing that we humans had interrupted that sacred bond between mother and child, that was the moment that compelled me to wanna to do more. Eventually, I got myself invited on a bigger research trip and this was to cross the ocean from Hawaii back to Los Angeles. And that was the voyage where I saw firsthand how quickly this issue was expanding. Large swaths, 4,000 miles, we, we traveled on that journey and we saw plastic the entire time. And then the other thing on that journey was when Charlie's director of research fished out a little uh, derelict fishing gear, made a ring and proposed. And that is my now husband, Marcus Erickson. <laughs> so that trip was a game changer on many fronts. And by the time we uh, landed in Los Angeles, Marcus had already hatched a plan to build a raft called Junk out of 15,000 plastic bottles and sail across the gyre. So we decided to take a bunch of samples from that voyage and do an outreach tour uh, down the coast of California, actually down the West Coast. We started at the Vancouver Aquarium and we rode our bicycles from Vancouver all the way down to Tijuana, giving talks at city councils and schools and universities and community centers to really push for banning single-use plastics. And along the way, we kept hearing people ask, well, is this a global problem? We've heard about that great Pacific garbage patch, but is this an issue in the Indian Ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean? So that was our impetus to start Five Gyres and really try and take the incredible work that Captain Charles Moore and others had done and expand it um, to the global oceans. And so you went to the other four gyres. Yeah, we, we spent those first four years really back to back at sea. We invited other researchers, citizen scientists, concerned 
individuals, CEOs of corporations. We had even some journalists and musicians come on board these expeditions, sail with us so that they could really see the issue firsthand and also help us with the research. Those people then became ambassadors for the issue of plastic pollution. We've had people like Steve Wilson and Carolyn Box and people that have gone on to start their own organizations, come on those voyages, roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, and then be, um, be change makers in their communities. And I, I think that is a good segue into the Break Free from Plastics Act, which in essence answers that question. Um, Anna, do you want to touch on that? So yes, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act uh, does exactly that. The idea is to push back on this idea that the public needs to pay and demand corporate accountability. So the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, which was introduced earlier this year in February, does a couple of things. It demands uh, producer responsibility so that corporations who are producing all of this plastic waste need to pay for the recovery. It also bans some of the difficult to recycle products like plastic bags. It prevents us from exporting our waste overseas, which we've been doing for decades and decades, just externalizing the problem to another country. And in general, it really demands responsibility from the producers, which is which is the highlight of it. There are some other things in the bill about recycled content, which if we can enforce a threshold for um, recycled content in, in our products, that starts to level out the playing field. Because right now, Unfortunately, virgin plastics are so cheap because of all these new sources of fossil fuels, fracking and shale and these other dirty methods that may make plastic, um, unfortunately, so cheap that there's little incentive for people to recycle. In addition to, to transitioning off of single use, we and all of our colleagues in Break Free from Plastic, I think, are big advocates of, of refill and reuse. And we also recognize as five gyres that it's going to take a minute to get there and we're going to need some transitional materials in order to get to a a fully circular system. So one of the research projects we're working on in 2021 is a deep dive on a material called PHA, polyhydroxyl alkanoate. And this is a form of a bioplastic that does show some promise at being truly biodegradable, compostable. And as an ocean guy, I've heard a lot about the possibility of a bioplastic based on algaes and seaweeds. This is a sugar compound you're talking about. So potentially it could be from any uh, organic growth product, no, or yes, or... Yeah, I mean, we certainly have the, the technology and the resources. The question is, can we do it at scale and do the economics work? And what makes this also challenging is that plastics are artificially cheap. You know, we have these subsidies that make the playing field really uneven and make it really hard to compete with virgin plastics. So really, if if you trace the problems of plastic all the way back, um, it really comes back to the stranglehold that corporations have of of our policymakers and these subsidies that keep plastics artificially cheap. If we could make it more of a level playing field and actually demand that corporations pay for the impacts, pay for the externalities, then, you know, it's not even a question. Right. If they didn't externalize their costs in the form of pollution, we'd have economic system that would work for all of us. Yeah, but that might not be capitalism. So (laughs) (laughs) there is practically a new paper coming out 
every month, if not a couple times a month, on some new source of plastic in the ice cores of the Arctic, in honey, in sea salt, in drinking water, and in the human body. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So there's no question that plastics are ubiquitous. And it's not that these necessarily are new expressions of plastic. It's just that the research is covering more and more ground. And everywhere we look, we find it. So really the main takeaway is that plastics have become a ubiquitous problem. We find them everywhere on the planet, in the ocean, even in outer space. As you said, David, the solutions are really challenging, but we know what the answers are. We have to move away from fossil fuel feedstocks for plastics. We have to stop producing so much plastic and really return to a refill and reuse culture. And we have to demand that corporations pay for these transitions. Well, Anna, it was wonderful talking with you. It's so nice to see all of the things that you've done since your early days as my intern and and the collaborations that you've been leading. And it's a pleasure working with you and talking with you. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining us on Rising Tide. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. If you'd like to advertise on Rising Tide, contact us at info at bluefront.org. If you have suggestions for guests or topics, you can also contact us via info at bluefront.org. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.